parents told him he'd never get anywhere playing video games for a living. Now he's here. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello everyone and welcome to Behind the Line Radio. This week we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, video game testing stuff. I know, I know, I talk about it plenty, but uh, we've got a new spin on it. This week we've got someone on from a, uh, a, a specifically QA testing house, a third-party testing house is a kind of place where if a developer doesn't have any testing resources of their own or not enough or there's something very important that has to happen that goes beyond what they can do, they reach out to these uh, additional third-party testing houses. So, Stephen, how are you doing today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, sort of the process that that, uh, you go through when you're, you know, trying to reach out to developers or developers reach out to you? How do how does the sort of the ball get rolling? Well, oftentimes, as a third-party outsource house, we provide a number of services, and in this case, QA. And as such, if we have developers or publishers that, as was just shared, may not have the capacity internally, may need an external set of eyes, those eyes might be fresh and new, maybe that can uncover things that an internal team may not have seen. That might be the case having tested the game for thousands and thousands of hours. Internal teams may miss components. So external partners are often called on for really one of those two reasons. And at that time, we usually take advantage of what a partner needs most. And in the outsource QA, we usually engage at a beta stage. Some will engage earlier, let's say at an alpha, code complete, content complete for many. Sometimes that's a beta milestone, depending on who we're working with. But to that end, we'll provide services, frankly, when our partners need them most. And as I say, that's often a beta. We have the capability to test from, let's say, first kind of playable milestone. But oftentimes that kind of test is taken care of internally. Uh, And it may be done by a smaller test team. It may be done by producers or associate producers. And as such, when we engage, we often engage late. And to take it to the next cycle, we'll often work with partners to find what the content is, what the code is, schedule, if we have multiple platforms, uh, depth of multiplayer, scopes, depth of gameplay. And at that point, we typically work in collaboration with our partners to define what that test plan is going to look like. Now, most outsource providers, ourselves included, can build a test plan start to finish, but we like to work hand-in-hand with our partners, as in doing so, we feel that we've brought ourselves closer, and although it's a little cliche, uh, it's a true statement, but we feel more an extension of our partner's team. Hmm. Cool. Um, So, uh, uh, 
you kind of touched on a lot of stuff there, and, and one of the th- uh, so I'll just kind of go through some of that point by point. You mentioned fresh eyes, and this is something that yes. comes up a lot in in testing, and I'm not sure if I've ever spoken about it before, but it's it's always worth remembering is when when you're working on a project and you just sort of get totally in tune with it occasionally you get so used to things you get so accustomed to things that you actually stop noticing problems you're just so acclimated to a certain like okay there's a crash in this thing okay well they're not going to they, they haven't been able to fix the crash yet so we have to work around it this other way to get at other things to test at and lo and behold there's like five other bugs with this thing that you're skipping that no one ever saw, even though the the crash with it got fixed. It's crazy, but stuff like that can happen. Very well said, and and frankly, all too often. And what we find, and regardless whether we have a formal certification or not, we get in that situation where that stuff's missed, and it's often missed at the most inopportune time, i.e. a certification, and perhaps a certification when you're already on your second and might be behind the ball. Uh, (laughs) Never an opportune time. Yeah, you you don't want you don't want uh, fresh eyes testing definitely has to come in early enough that you can actually fix the problems. Well said. Um, well said. Yeah, there was there was even j- just for this that kind of example there was this might be apocryphal but I heard a story about a game that uh, the testing team thought themselves so good at the game that no one ever had any trouble beating the game. They just knew how to how to get through the game really, really well, which, if that's true, then fine. But uh, someone else joined the team, and they realized that the issue was that the AI never fought back. Ever. Uh, indeed. <laughs> or or those kinds of bugs where, you know, you, you watch your... Um, movie sequences so many times you just want to skip it skip it skip it skip it you have to play through this thing 10 times a day no i don't want to spend five minutes each time and you know (laughs) this is kind of timely because you know the whole death stranding trailers coming out but like a kojima game with with uh like i I feel kind of bad for the people on the metal gear solid games who had to keep watching the sequences over and over and over (laughs) can you imagine i feel the same (laughs) <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. Uh, there's also, um, you know, you mentioned usually you'd come in on a beta. So I got to ask you this one. How consistent are is the definition of beta in your experience of, of what uh, developers uh, uh, call something at beta? It uh, is as, as much as it should be so clearly defined, and I've been in the industry over 20 years, a lot of my time was in production producing games. So I built a milestone schedule or two over time or seen quite a few. And to that, you'd think it was very, very uh, clear, but I bet it's not as bad as it was 10 and 15 years ago. 10 and 15 years ago, everybody would have a different definition of what your alpha and, and beta are. But now it has tightened up. I'd probably see... I'd say maybe, and you may have a better grip of this than I do, but I bet about 60-70% of the time everybody's roughly on the same page, maybe 75%. One of the things I saw in the past was that a lot of the milestone schedules, and, and again, we know we might have 20, 30, 50, 100, depending on what kind of, you know, how we're kind of workflows and the likes, but to that end, 
let's say we have more of a traditional 10, 20 milestones, et cetera, um, and then you get into your alphas, your betas, your RCs. You might have a number of RCs that you may allocate uh, in a milestone schedule, but a lot of the times it's so driven on a financial payment. Oh, and a lot right. of times, so when you think about that, let's say a developer is at beta. Well, let's start with an alpha, and, and you know this better than I do, but let's say we're at an alpha, and it might be a SKU that's going to go on Sony Microsoft, so we have a formal submission. Um, it's June. At that point, we're going to call our alpha June 1, and then we're going to call our beta uh, July 1, and then we're going to go our first RC, you know, first week of August, and we know we're going to need a couple weeks at that, so we're going to go in for certification mid-August. Um, so let's think about that for a second, especially for big games. They could be big console, big PC, big mobile, or they don't even have to be big at all. But when you think about how much needs to, to complete between, let's say, an alpha state, even if you've defined, let's say we define, and some will say that, again, alpha, uh, your code and content complete, you may not uh, on your original language version, let's say English, you may not be low complete until beta, perhaps, but back to alpha, your code and content completed alpha clearly. And then what we'd often do is we'd say, you know, and you have X percentage bugs remaining at that point. And then by the time, and then you'd whittle through from alpha to beta to RC, but by RC1, oftentimes we would mandate that you would be less than 10% A bugs remaining, sometimes even five. And that can often be a challenge to get to that point. But the real point I wanted to make was a two-month window between, okay, we just became code and content complete, let's say June 1 alpha, and then we're going in for a certification, or if we're not, required of a certification instead we're just simply going to manufacture release uh mobile or pc that's two and a half months give or take <laughs> it's not a lot of time no it is especially, not and especially because when you find bugs and fix bugs you're going to create more bugs exactly well and then herein lies the rub with the milestone so a lot of the times you get to that alpha the alpha is a higher paid oftentimes a higher paid milestone than previous Alpha, beta, RC, typically higher. And a lot of the times, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of the times developers are working significantly more hours at this state than they were perhaps in earlier parts of their development. What does that mean? It means development studios are burning more internally and therefore would like or need to have more cash on hand. So, if a developer doesn't meet said alpha milestone and that might be their heaviest or largest payout and they don't get paid that money, we sometimes see where problems arise, huh. both from a definition of milestones <laughs> and bringing something home to completion when you think about monetary coming in and factoring um, bringing a bringing something to completion, bringing a game home, and so I've personally been in situations where I've knowingly approved an alpha or a beta, clearly outside of milestone definition or scope scale, and that's just 
the way it is. I knew <laughs> that what was most important was getting the game done. Well, yeah. And like, if that meant putting money in pocket, go ahead. And, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something I say a lot is uh, business got a business. There you go. Very so, well said. So for anyone who isn't fully familiar, I, I, I believe, and correct me if, if you have a, or, or you know, let me know if you have a different basic understanding, but my, my classic understanding of, of your milestones is you got your pre-alpha, which is your, you know, that covers everything from, you know, your design and initial implementation. And once you're at alpha state, that means every planned feature should be present it doesn't have to function it could be very placeholder and very rough and very buggy but it should be represented in the product in the development product in some way and that's where um a lot of really rough bugs are going to show up between alpha and beta and that makes sense that an alpha payment would have to be bigger because that's where the bulk of your design and initial implementation is going to have to come in very well summarized well said beta on the other hand uh, should mean that there are uh, all of the features are in and function properly, and there are no uh, critical bugs. There are no A bugs. There are no blockers, uh, which gotcha. means that every beta build should be considered a release candidate, which is what you were when you said RC. That for anyone who doesn't know, that means Indeed. release candidate, which means this is something that we are going to look at with the possibility that this is what we're going to release to the consumers. <clears throat> Very well said. And well uh, said. The, the, the trick is everyone kind of has a different definition of all the little sub-concepts that go into this. And I got to tell you, there was one... Oh, boy. Um, you mentioned first playable. That's usually something that comes in the pre-alpha stage. That's like when the earliest testing can really start. That's like your first, the first version of the program that'll actually run and you can interact with. Um, Roger. I once was in a position where I had to mark something as beta, which according to the contract apparently met the definition of beta within the contract, but mm. it was really somewhere between first playable and alpha indeed wow this was something where it would this is mobile and it would only run on one device wow uh it would (laughs) we actually had to run several revisions to actually get it to complete an online pvp match wow it, it took like uh-huh. a week for that. And it's like, okay, we once completed a single PvP match. Okay, I guess it's beta now. <laughs> because because yeah. Yeah. that had a payment associated with it. So they had to do it. There you go. And sometimes we make, you know, well, and I'll say, and, and this is a question maybe for you, in, you know, in my days as a producer, executive producer, etc., once we got to, and let's say at Activision, um, and I'm not sure if we should talk about specifics, but nonetheless, some companies large, uh, when you get to a certain state and they'd like to say alpha and they define their alpha very specifically and much as you defined at that point, let's say beta, because I would often push back at the alpha state. But at beta, ultimately, QA would formally take over the game and bring it home. Hmm. Um, so at that point, production was no longer – so my producers, producers kind of myself, I could weigh in a little bit because we're talking bigger picture overall commercial perhaps. But at that point, QA was driving. 
because it was a quality play. It was is the company's uh, brand and reputation. Uh, metrics had been established based on how many bugs, how clean, etc. And to that end, candidly, there'd be quite a bit of fighting going on between, let's say, and this is, and 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 there, oftentimes we'll get some back and forth between production QA. We can talk about that if you'd like. But in this case, you get some arguments because you know how producers are. We've worked on this game forever and ever. Uh, you know, it's my job. It's a franchise. I've got a lot of people working and committed to it. What do you mean I don't have full ownership at the very end? I have <laughs> to pass this to somebody else. Wait a minute. That I don't know. And so a lot of people push back. But the rationale is... In, as it's been presented to me, producers sometimes get pressure from development directors, tech directors, studio heads, marketing, PR, CEOs. Yeah, I was going to say, I, you're going to get them from C-levels, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, everybody's saying, you got to get this out, and, you know, QA is just that, quality. Um, so it was hard for me to get accustomed and comfortable to... The notion of I really have to trust in another team and allow them to bring me home. Mm -hmm. But uh. once you establish that trust and you've got that confidence that this team knows what they're doing and, in fact, do this hundreds of times every month, what have you, more, uh, you're going to have to trust. But I'll tell you, that was a toughie, you yeah. know, and, and it became a mandate at some of the larger publishers just to help play that, you know, just to ensure the quality and if you're if you're console and you have a reputation to uphold both with hardware manufacturers internally maybe throughout the 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 industry community you're really proud of your certification record and i know a number of organizations that i work uh production side uh we were we were very proud because we were darn near a hundred percent uh outsource providers such as where i am now also a feather in our hat, if you will, where we can talk confidently about, hey, we've done over a thousand certifications to all hardware during the course of, let's say, 2016, and we're nearly a 99% first-time approval mm -hmm. uh, situation. We're proud of that, and I know internal publishing QA teams are proud of that. And candidly, it's my understanding that some internal teams, QA teams, also receive bonus uh, to some extent based upon some of those types of metrics. And I don't know if that's true so much anymore, but uh, I know it was in the past where QA would would, would reap some level of, of, of benefit reward financially for such. Yeah, uh, and for anyone who doesn't, it, it, like you say, uh, you're talking about submitting things for certification and certification success. So if particularly on say console, you know, you submit, I, I actually think this used to be bigger and more strenuous and because consoles were a bigger portion of the, uh, um, game ecosystem that it was a, a larger issue. But right now, if you want to release on a console, you have to submit it to Microsoft, to Sony, to Nintendo, and they will do their own testing to make sure that, you know, it is a quality product that they want to have on their platform. And so, 
uh, Apple does this a little bit, but Apple is weird. They're weirder mm-hmm. than N- Nintendo is notoriously weird with this stuff, and Apple's kind of worse. They'll just yeah. make stuff up. <laughs> they do. So uh, depending yeah, on the time of year, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a. Uh, um, so yeah, it's it's definitely very um very nice to have a proven track record of success and you mentioned you have like, you know, nearly 100%, like 99% success rate and that's something that uh I uh, just mentioning 99% reminds me of something I've run into in the past where um say at one point back in the day uh, mobile used to have something else I'm not going to quite get into it but you know um and this is like 10 years ago, it was before Apple and Google got into it. But we would say, look, our, our success rate with uh, these NSTL submissions is, you know, like 98, 99%. And some, like we were interviewing someone, and they said, well, why isn't it 100? Yeah. It's not 100 because there's a lot of them and <laughs> things happen. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I find it really irritating. You got it's me like... laughing there a little bit. You got me <laughs> laughing, but yeah, exactly right. You are so right. Or you know, that's there's some of that mentality around where it's like, why did anything ever get missed? Yeah. Well, why do you think we're testing? Like, if if things weren't going to happen, why would you have testers? You could just have engineers code things perfectly in the first place. That's it. Well said. Or or like. Uh, if if bug gets found late in the process, well, why wasn't this found earlier? The same reason we're still testing it. <laughs> That's right. We all love that. Uh, and there's a fight. You know, how many times have you engaged developers, producers, etc., about why didn't you find that bug earlier? <laughs> it was in the previous code set. You should have seen it. How are we going to get this game to market if you continue to miss bugs that were in the code day one? <laughs> I love having conversations with heads of studio, heads of QA, producers, production team like that. People are angry, yeah. and, it, and it's tough. And uh, but it's always the stones always get thrown at QA, and it's <laughs> just uh, well, QA is the one at the end of the pipe. So anything comes out of the schedule, it comes out of QA's schedule. QA is the one that. One of the ways I've described it is QA is what makes it not hurt when the rubber meets the road. Yeah, well said. There's uh, I mean, I'd love to see, and I've talked about this with uh, Marco in the past, but uh, I'd love to see things like Game Award shows actually acknowledge uh, a good QA team, but there's yeah. really no way to do that. It's completely hidden from... Uh, the consumers. I mean, you can look at it and say, well, if a game has less bugs, QA did better. No, no. If a game has more bugs, there's a good chance QA found everything you're seeing. It just didn't yeah. get fixed. Yep, 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 yep. And it's not it's not like editing, because we're almost like video game editors. In, in, a, in a movie or a book, you can tell good editing. Not a game. Yeah. Yeah. Would it be nice if we could if it would be that easy? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know I know a lot of external partners. Now of course I might not say my own, but I know a lot of external partners that are very focused on trying to put a process together where we can in fact and I and I don't want to use the buzzword of an end to end, but where we can in fact make changes for dev. Now, obviously, that means parts of the you know maybe all of the all of the code base, the source itself, um, maybe some stuff was written in 
if it's a if it's a, a proprietary engine like a Unity or an Unreal, where a lot of engineers have great experience with, I'm finding more and more partners are interested in that in our sector in the gaming sector. More and more people are talking about higher level software and QA engineers such that especially as we have so much content on unity or let's say unreal we'll just stick with those two uh engines at this point but there's a lot of content on those and there are plenty of engineers some may have worked at developers that no longer exist or publishers or what have you uh and they're now on market or they could be engine standalone engineering firms that do nothing more than this but in in hand in hand with that, they might do porting. They may do localization, i.e., there's an English version and you need a language version with X through Y different languages, and you'd rather not do that yourself. So you'd pass the English version over to, let's say, an outsource provider, an outsource provider who may have specialties in a lot of these disciplines, QA, LOC, or what have you and then now has the engineering component, it makes it perhaps an enticing offer to publishers, perhaps big and small, such that one might say, hey, we've got you covered. Give us the English. We've got your other languages. Mm -hmm. Or, to your previous point, we can make some fixes on the fly. And I will say, on a, and you know this, on a localization QA where you're dealing with text, bugs and strings and could be simple run-ons not fitting on screen accordingly not fitting in text boxes not fitting in the hud or ui accordingly or it could be grammar uh punctuation uh or just it could be french instead of spanish uh but language related a lot of providers ourselves included will make those fixes on the fly for our partner Mm -hmm. Oftentimes that's in a text file, but at least we'll make the change so that the developer need do less other than, let's say, re-embed that text file. But we're starting to see more and more partners come to us with the ask of, can you help us end-to-end loc? Yeah. Can you fix any of our functional bugs? And I'm excited to see that happening. Uh, most people I know in days past, I'd never share my code. Uh, be very nervous <laughs> about it. We always rip our code up. We tweak it. We polish it. We tailor it toward what we need. But more and more people are, as, and we'll just use Unity. We'll take Unreal out of it and Epic. But more and more people using Unity, and they're tweaking it and modifying it. But from what I've gathered, both talking to Unity engineers and others, um, it's not so overly complex that a smart Unity engineer couldn't get in and follow probably exactly what any uh, internal engineer had done in modification to the Unity code base because it's not that complex. Mm. Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, secrecy that can tend to happen in game development because there's a lot of trade secrets, a lot of like, oh, we've got this function that we want to keep uh, exclusive to ourselves or, or whatever, so... Even if you've got uh, non-disclosure agreements signed, there can be a lot of hesitance to like release source or something to any uh, other developer, even to the publisher of your game or to an external developer. And talking about localization, 
also goes to one of the points about what can be so helpful about having uh, uh, your own team that is is like and when I say you, I mean you, Stephen. Your team sure. will be. Um, you can maintain resources to, you know, actually have people who, you know, understand all the different languages that you would want to localize to or maintain offices in different parts of the world that can have the cultural understanding to make sure the translations are intelligent and, and properly localized, not just translated, but localized. And you can't expect one developer to be able to maintain that kind of infrastructure, whereas an external agency working with multiple developers can maintain that infrastructure and that makes things much more effective across the board, across the entire industry to have that kind of service available. Very well said. And it's, and it's how we remain in business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's how we remain. Another point I, you know, you know, mobile a million fold. One of the other things that has really helped, let's say outs, outside or external QA um, really thrive over the last five and ten years is mobile. Yeah, uh, because well, and that's argue, one of the big things there ahead. is because there's so many mobile devices. Again, you can't. Not all the developers are going to be able to invest the time to either research it or put the effort into checking each one or even the resources to be able to purchase each device that would make for a good testing spread for compatibility across all of the different devices out there. Now, there's a limited set of iOS devices because those are all manufactured by Apple, but on Android, those that's a, a, a standard that's um, you know a technology type that's open to other people to manufacture. So there's thousands and thousands and thousands of active devices out in the world, and e e there is not one project, I guarantee you, that has tested on all of them because no one ever would. Uh, but Indeed. you can, with an intelligent approach, uh, put together a pretty good spread of devices that are representative of a larger spread. You check different chipsets, different you know memory profiles, and so forth. And uh, you know, on top of that, uh, uh, take market share into consideration. And that's the kind of research and um, you know main maintenance of a device library that a third-party QA can. Uh, maintain and that doesn't just that isn't limited to mobile either that can apply to console especially when you're hitting things like the uh, this um, sort of half console generation jump with the PlayStation 4.5 Xbox Scorpio or whatever it's called yeah, um, yeah, yeah. because games are now going to have to be compatible across different versions uh, of the console uh, you have things like, let's say you got an Xbox, or I almost said an Xbox 4. That would be weird. Yeah. But uh, yeah, a, yeah. a PlayStation 4, and you like once updated the operating system uh, a few months ago, and now you have lost your internet connection. You know, technically, if you wanted to do full compatibility, you'd want to maintain a library of different uh, of all of the different models. Like I say, there, there's like a PlayStation 4. There's multiple models of PlayStation 4, the different ones with different memory. Um, yeah. Every time they, they release a new version of these things, you're going to like if you look at the different models of PlayStation 3, I think there's like 10 of them. I think you're right. I mean, I know there's at least six or seven, and you know more mm -hmm. than I. And that's crazy to think. You know, I mean, that's yeah. crazy to think. And yeah. the, so the um, 
the hardware, the actual interaction, even with different operating systems on consoles, they should be pretty solid and standardized. But at the same time, comparing the um, the investment and the expectations that a user is going to get from uh, or is going to place against a console release is going to be so much higher than a mobile release, particularly a free-to-play mobile release, uh, mm-hmm. that you don't want to mess around with that. And if you can, if anyone can, they will want to verify across as many uh, hardware profiles and operating system versions as they can for a console release or yeah. update or whatever. It's kind of crazy. Well, and as we... Well, and indeed, and as you know, just over the last month or so, well, three months, we got the new micro, the new Xboxes. The last month or maybe just two weeks, we have the new PlayStation. And the new PlayStation, essentially, they, you know, they've thrown in a new video card and thrown in some other kickers, but the new video card's darn near double what the previous is. And we all know in video games, your video card is a very significant, if not, some will argue, but if not one of the most significant components of said box. And to have a new video card uh, that's nearly, from what I gathered, nearly double that of the previous huh. uh, PlayStation 4, the, the, that's so the, not inconsequential. <laughs> the video yeah. card is twice as powerful. It's almost like they want to generate two images just as fast, you know, one for each eye. <laughs> well, <laughs> for your VR it makes headsets. you wonder. <laughs> and, and then that brings you into VR and... Uh, you know, and, and frame rates, and, and I know, you know, we, we're doing a lot of work with different groups uh, doing VR, Sony, Oculus, HTC, et cetera, um, and we all, we, you know, you've probably talked before about frame rates, minimum frame rates, what the eye can actually decipher in games. We often talk about stutter uh, when we're testing um, how low, what's the lowest threshold in terms of frame rate we're going to allow the game to ship with, um, a very tough balance sometimes because we want the, our games to be very immersive. Uh, sometimes immersion comes with more stuff on screen at a given time or on the phone or on the device, and that's pulling bandwidth. And if we've got some AI and we've got a lot of AI going, it's going to pull on your memory. But to that end, I tell you, um, if you look at, let's say, a Sony who's dropped in a new video card that's near double – on this PS4, um, I mean, it's it, I, you could almost argue, and I am, so, and there may be some articles written to this, but you could almost argue that PlayStation could have released this as PlayStation Five. I mean, I know that's kind of a stretch, but we know a lot of what changes generation to generation on console. Not the controllers per se, not the look, not the hard drive space, but it's its overall processor and its memory and its graphics processor. And I think on the PS4, on the Pro, the newest release, I think they've, I clearly on the video card side, but I think they might have kicked in a little bit more memory. And they, I don't want to say they overclocked it, but they might be running it a little bit uh, more bandwidth on that core chip. Hmm. Uh, but, but tough if you bought... Let's say just last Christmas, you bought yourself a PlayStation 4 and didn't buy it at launch. <laughs> um, and now you have this one. But uh, I've also, you know, with Microsoft, not to take a big dig, but, you know, Microsoft released their Xbox One. And then they did an Xbox Elite that some of us may have purchased. <clears throat> um, I like the controller that it came with uh, and the fact that it had a, a hybrid hard drive. 
might make it a little bit faster, but a year later, or perhaps less than, they released their most recent version, which is the S with full 4K and everything else. So, Well, I mean, uh, that's that's one of the risks inherent with buying <laughs> anything in technology. You wait a little bit, it's going to get a lot cheaper, or there's going to be a better version out, or both. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's just part and parcel, and, and it feels a little awkward right now because the previous console generation was a pretty lengthy one. Indeed. Indeed. I think, was the last one on three, was that the longest we've ever seen? From PlayStation 1 to 2 was a pretty good run. Um, 2 to 3, not that long, but 3 to 4? I mean, what did we do? PlayStation 3 came out in 05? Well, let me let me check here. Let's see. I, I, I want to say it was pretty long, but I also know that the um, like the Nintendo Entertainment System in that generation was, was oh, uh, longer sure. than people tend to think. Yeah, forever and ever. You are right. If we step back to those days, you're right. Um, but yeah, I think maybe in '05, Christmas '05, Sony and Microsoft came out on their three and 360. Um, so yeah, a good bit of time, hey, uh, versus some of the others. Because yeah, I think it was PS2 uh, came it was two thousand six. The PlayStation Three came out in uh, two thousand six. Okay, got it, got it. Yep, yep, yep. So yep. like a good eight year run. Yeah. Um, or, or if you if you want to get really technical about it, I mean the the Nintendo Entertainment System generation isn't dead yet because the Sega Master System is still sold in Brazil. Nice. <laughs> Well, and they released that little, and, and this, this is not the same, but um, I guess they, they released that little mini NES or something recently in mm. retail. I have not seen it, but I heard people talking about it, so uh, Nintendo trying to... But I, but I, from what I've gathered, they sold out in a, in a, in a heartbeat, but a $60 oh, yeah. there's, uh, retro there's, there's room for criticism there for, for shorting their own supply. You, you know, standard Nintendo. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't think they'd make that mistake on something like that, but yeah. So yeah. uh, you, I, I'm going to presume that this is also kind of a, 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 I suppose you could call it a fringe benefit of being in that, that sort of external testing position of, you know, you get to see all this nifty hardware. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even on production side, and you probably see a lot of hardware in your house too for testing compatibility, this, that, and the other, but... We we're pretty we're a pretty large organization have a number of locations and we have a lot of tests and we test with a lot of people and as such it does allow us to have a good bit of hardware. We were in the VR space pretty darn early for the last couple of years supporting um, you know the VR manufacturers uh, and obviously publishers and developers who are bringing content. So a lot of that stuff was in very early to some extent at prototype. If we go back a generation or so and we think about Xbox Connect, that stuff was in with us early. <laughs> PlayStation Move was in with us early. We look back to days of, you know, early guitar heroes and rock band kit and sets, obviously needing to test a lot of different devices. DDR you and I have been pads. in this industry. You got it. And <laughs> I was going to say, we'll bring us back a little further. You and I have been here for a long time. We go back to Time Crisis and Namco light guns and yeah. things like that. Uh, we'd have to test against different light guns. We didn't have that many. I think it was just pretty much Namco, and I may be mistaken, but I think it might have been Namco had one, and there might have been an aftermarket or two. But yeah, a uh, lot of different stuff. And 
And then it, and then Activision got crazy for a while trying to do a Tony Hawk skateboard, oh, a DJ boy. Hero, a little Mixmaster. Yeah. Uh, that was a little much at that point, but uh Hey, so speaking of these things, let me let me ask you another one. Do you do you ever get contacted to to work to to do testing for a third-party peripheral? Like you're not it's not like a uh, Guitar Hero, where the peripheral comes with the game, but you're actually requested by, say, I don't know, a Mad Cats or a Logitech to test their hardware. A lot of the times we're not directly from them because I think, like, let's say a Logitech or even video card manufacturers, NVIDIA, ATI, Logitech, Mad Cats, you know, all the different manufacturers of things and items that go. We have all that kit in because our partners are going to ex- expect us to test against it. But what we found, because you very well said it'd be a great business, why not an external test location support a Logitech or a Madcats, for example? And and in my efforts, because you know me enough, I've probably reached out to a friend or two. <coughs> and I've often been told, you know, our internal R&D and test lab is pretty impressive. So I think from that perspective... Um, it kind of goes back to the software engineering side where a lot of the test internally at, let's say, uh, a Logitech are software engineers and hardware engineers who know that product inside and out. But one of the previous topics you also mentioned was, or we talked about, was fresh set of eyes. Wouldn't it then therefore be sensible for, um, let's say, those groups to provide a fresh set of eyes? You know how they get around it. They send all that hardware to publishers like yourself or developers or to EA and Activision for free because they want to cross-promote. And to that end, guess what? All those devices, and and I, I, I hate to jump into the video card, but video card was a very common situation where NVIDIA and ATI would send us reference boards uh, and reference drivers so frequently you could shake a stick. But to that end it clearly behooved us to test the heck out of it because if we didn't run super efficient and super clean on a given peripheral, in this case a hardware, a a video card, or in other cases, let's say, um, a multifunction mouse or something of that nature, um, yeah, we'd have to test it. Now, we also know if we go over to PC side, though, Many years ago, we got something called DirectX. This many years ago, but it surely helped us as it related to hardware and device compatibility, at least on a PC. It's far different for compatibility checks and and fixing compatibility issues pre-DirectX. Hmm. Uh, but that may be another conversation. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, so... Another thing that I, I was I, I wanted to sort of bring up as uh, uh, a very useful thing for an external is um, you know there there's open betas where and a lot of people misunderstand kind of the point of an open beta is like oh I'm going to go in there and I'm going to test and they're going to expect me to report bugs and you know I mean if you find bugs in an open beta then that's great but the Ooh. the main objective is just to get more people onto the system and make sure, especially for you know anything based on a server to get load on the server and make sure the server is actually you know able to be used at scale make sure it actually yes. runs properly 
Um, but there are other situations where you don't want to just load a bunch of people on and do stuff. You want to have more people, more actual testers on there at once to look at something. You know, your um, you know, 64-man death battle in Battlefield or whatever it was. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a pretty, pretty large order for just a developer or even some publishers to be able to muster that many people at one time. And this is what uh, I was explain I was kind of describing right at the beginning, where if you have a test where it's just a surge, you just need more for a short period of time. And that's another thing where it's it's really helpful to reach external for it's like, okay, we just need like 50 people for a day. Just get in here and help us out. Yeah. So, well, it's it's a great part of what externals do. And one step further, as you say, loading a server, uh, but also loading a server globally or regionally. And so if you have an outsource provider that may have multiple offices throughout the world, you can then stress multiple ser- you, you can support a partner by stressing multiple servers. They may have servers in, you know, a couple servers throughout the United States, a couple in Western Europe, could be some in Asia, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have a partner that has facilities in those locations, it may uh, we may be able to provide a service where we are then logging closer to, let's say, that European server than if we were trying to do so from the states, which you'd never want to do, for example. So external can surely help. Yeah, or, uh, on or that for that matter, yeah. or for that matter, if you wanted to have a completely distributed session where you like, I want someone here from India, and I want someone here from Eastern Europe, and I want someone here from, I don't know, Australia, and someone from North America, you know, and and you grab like east one East Coast, one West Coast, and you you distribute people along all this. Do you still have a seamless multiplayer interaction with all these people from all these different places at the same time? Very well said. Or better yet. Um, 50 in each location or yeah. more. Now, now, the challenge, and from an outsource provider's perspective, uh, a lot a lot of people may call me and say, hey, Steve, can you help us with 1,000 people? And then they'll say, you know, I, I know you don't have 1,000 people that you can give us internally, but you've got an external network. Can we utilize some at-home individuals or whatever um, for an open beta? And candidly, we don't do it. Not yet. We've looked at a number of different ways, but I bet you know why I'm going to say we don't do it. It's just too risky. Mm. Uh, if it's a live game and we're, we're, we're messing around with kind of a content update, maybe not a big content update, we may consider getting a wider network or having some of our people so that we can get 500 or what have you. <coughs> but there have been other groups in our sector that have done this kind of stuff and that things may have leaked. Um, and, and we're just not going to security is clearly paramount for an outsource provider. Uh, it, you know, we haven't talked about that, but it starts with security. At the end of the day, somebody's code, somebody's millions and millions and millions of dollars of development and then expected revenue is out of their office and in our office, being touched by a lot of different people. And many of those people, uh, the, the hiring partner, will never see. You might meet me. You may meet my mm-hmm. head of QA. But you're never going to meet that kid who's 22 and a great tester uh, or the hundred other guys and gals who are also testing. 
So we go through a very rigorous process, a lot of security and, and paperwork and cameras and badges and flashing and hot zones and green zones and all the rest. Great. But candidly, we're just and, and I'm not uh, comfortable uh, doing that kind of beta test. Uh, and we often let our partners kind of drive it themselves. Now, if a partner drives it themselves and to some extent is distributing the build, um, and and people f- that we allocate are signing, let's say, NDAs direct with us, of course, but also that publisher, then we're a little more open-minded because that publisher is taking advantage, or developer, is taking advantage of our team, but also likely friends and family on test, mm. uh, maybe a more open beta. So there's a, a big cross-section, so it's not just us. But there have been, and within the last couple of years, there was an instance of something, not from us, of course, but of something getting out. Um, and it really made a lot of the outsource providers take a step back yeah. because we'd been thinking about, you know, well, shoot, too many people are asking us, can you beta test? Can you beta test? Can you, we need 500 people. We need to stress the <laughs> server, you know, globally. Can you, you know, can you actually write up some bugs, yeah. uh, you know, whatever? And to that end, it's tough. We have 3,000 people globally, uh, not all in tests, but but fundamentally we're test. And from that perspective, we can clearly support, but on a beta, not yet. We're thinking about other ways. We've got some things in the mix, but it's just a little too scary at this point. Um, and it hasn't made financial sense for us to, let's say, build out a space or make enough space available where we could have 500 people internally, let's say, run a specific test on a specific game for a particular publisher. Uh, let's say one of our particular offices for QA has got about 500 people, but they're never all sitting idle. You know, everybody's obviously busy. They could be testing mobile, console, PC, what have you. And to that end, we can't just grab, okay, we need 500 guys and gals on this particular game, on these particular mobile devices, it's harder. You know, it's harder. Uh, so there's got to be a solution. We're thinking about it. You know, we think about cloud testing. Uh, it's the same as an open beta as far as I'm concerned. It's still risky. So it's tough. Uh, but there's got to be a way to support partners with these more massive amounts of players um, and we know there's some significant games that you and I are both familiar with that have huge install bases yeah. and that play the heck out of um, some of the games that you and I know best. Um, so, yeah, getting a heavy stress test is, is interesting. Now, there are tools for it, too, as you know. We use a lot, a lot of kind of bandwidth stress tools. LandForge is one example where we can throttle bandwidth uh, to emulate different types of scenarios in a network environment. So we'll use tools, but again, they're not real world like you would have with, let's say, various cable or DSL or whatever kind of, uh, whatever kind of throughput or, or, you know, cable you're going to have or fiber network connection you're going to have. Hmm. But you, yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it's interesting to, to, to um, you mentioned, you know, something gets out and it can 
cause ripples across the entire sort of sector, the the outsourcing QA sector, because, you know, it makes everybody a little bit uh, more cautious because they have, you know, just because there's a non-disclosure agreement in place doesn't mean everybody who's going to touch it is going to be trustworthy. Sometimes, you know, someone who's a signatory to an NDA is not acting in good faith. Um, There's one one other thing I I wanted to kind of get your opinion on. Um, No Man's Sky just had a release, and and No Man's Sky is something that had a, uh, um, let's say, rocky outing. Uh, (laughs) Indeed. And uh, one of the things that people kind of point to is that, um, fairly or unfairly, they say, you know, Hello Games is too small a team to try to work on so ambitious a project. Uh, yeah. If Hello Games were to approach you for, uh, to to do some work on No Man's Sky, and let's say they they approached you about this um, several months before the initial release, like uh, what sort of um, advice would you give, or what kind of approach might you take for that one? From a QA perspective, yeah, versus like development or engineering, just yeah. for QA perspective. Yeah. So from a QA, see, that's an interesting one because. And it kind of goes along with the lines of when people engage us. Sometimes people will engage us and they want our feedback, qualitative feedback, um, you know, as well as quantitative. And you know the definitions there. Qualitative, we're going to talk more about quality and kind of feature rich and how rich and enjoyable the experience is uh, versus conversely very static and finite stuff. But I'll tell you. Ten years ago, when I started kind of doing business and supporting kind of QA externally, no one would ever want quality or qualitative tests from us. Well, we got that internally. We have our internal executive (laughs) producer. We have our associate. My associate producers played this build a million times. Uh, You know, we've had we've had focus. No need need to get a different point of view in there. Yeah. You know, and it's so absurd. But to that end, it's, it's, it's the classic fallacy of designing a product for yourself, not for your consumer. Indeed. Well, and the positive is over time that's changed. Um, but to that end, oftentimes we'll make recommendations. So if we see, let's say somebody contracts us and it's a publisher and they've got a developer and let's say the developer is hello. Um, and but we're working directly with the publisher in that case we're a little more apt and able to have and oftentimes it's me having this discussion with our with our you know our public with our partner who happens to be a publisher about the state of the code and we'll qualify this much like i bet you do and i know you i have to assume you do you know you're going to have a lot of data you're going to have a lot of reports you're going to have a lot of charts and those charts are going to show a trend and that trend's going to show you're either going to make that darn date or you're way the heck off hmm. and from that um <coughs> excuse me you may take it a step further to where you have the milestone, uh, you know, you have the you have the contract and milestone schedule, the game design doc, and you know what was supposed to be in the game, and what's no longer there. So at that point, more questions arise. Well, wait, we were supposed to have you know sixty player multi. We were supposed to have four player co op. We were supposed to have twenty five fly you know flying you know aircraft. Um, we've got ten, for example. What do you do? <laughs> um, nine times out of ten, it's not ours to say. At least for the bigger things, yeah. as you say, in terms yeah. of feature, 
That's uh, that's uh, one thing I like to say is you know it's not QA's job to uh, it's it's not our game. We just tell them what's wrong with it. There you go. Very well said. But then you'll get a lot of producers that will utilize an external test house as a scapegoat, such that and some in some oh. larger publishers. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes external, you know, all of a sudden we'll get we'll get a call from somebody that that you know we know the game's coming out in in. You know, or it's going to have to get into manufacturing in two or three months, and it's let's say it's a console, so it's you know let's say it's early summer, uh, and they should be wrapping it up, and then all of a sudden we may get a call saying, hey, we need twenty five thousand hours against this particular yep, platform. Yep, that's what I was going to say. And, it's just you go to the external, and you ju- it's just to throw man hours at it, and so if you get a whole bunch of people for a few days, and you've got all these hours, but they're not quality hours because you need more contiguous time from one person to be able to get deeper. And then they say, oh, look, is it, 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 there's all these problems. Well, it's not our fault. Look at all the testing hours that got put on it with no That's qualitative it. analysis of how good those hours were or how uh, if those hours were put in the best position to be able to get good results. I've been on a project totally where so. I'm reasonably certain something like that happened, but it was entirely internal where basic it, 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 the entire QA staff of the company got pulled onto one project uh, for wow. a couple of weeks, and I'm pretty sure it was just to, to uh, buffer the, the hours on it because it was apparent that there were significant problems in the game, and someone was just doing a CYA move on that one. Which was to disrupted your, to a whole n- bunch of other stuff. Jesus, but whatever. Well, and we see it far too often, my good man, and it's it's scary. And as I say, sometimes you're scapegoated. Sometimes they're trying to alleviate kind of pain on their side. But to your No Man's Sky example, um, it's an interesting. I mean, that, that you know, a lot of articles, a lot of smarter people than I have talked about it. But I've of course got an opinion. Um, but to that end, I do fall on the – I've worked with a lot of developers um, that are smaller, a lot of external, haven't ever had a whole lot of internal development studios like an EA BioWare or whatever, or Maxis in days past, uh, never had that luxury. I was always external. Nothing wrong with external. But to that end, and this perhaps another call or time for another call as it relates to development and tests for an external developer versus – test for an internal let's say ea or some other company um own studio there's different pressure that can be applied per se but on no man's you know my opinion is um it was a small studio they didn't have i don't think they had the right tech director or tech guy in early enough to say that's not going to happen if you do that, and if you want to do this, 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 this times a hundred, then you need to think about all of these mm. other thirty-five things because that's not going to work with that, and this isn't going to work with that, and that's going to take ten times longer than you need. And now I understand you're under budget or you're over budget. <coughs> We've thrown more money at you, but we can't get those assets built, integrated to the core experience and have it be any funner than their original core experience. <laughs> so it's a it's a so it's a difficult one. And I've been involved with big games, big license, where you were supposed to come out last year, you didn't, we're gonna throw it. And when I was developing we didn't have the you know a hundred million dollar development budget was massive. You could get three platforms done on thirty million or twenty five million in days past. 
I've not produced a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One game. I was la I was previous generation was last stuff that I produced. But to that end, um, I just frankly I think that more support from a technical side should have been thrown at them sooner and then had a more appropriate audit taken as to what they were really trying to achieve and heck maybe even done it and you wouldn't call it episodic but maybe you scaled back and really focused on x and define a per and x is a percentage of what they're overall wanting to achieve mm -hmm. and then further inject more through time a dlc strategy um, expansion pack, second release, I don't know, um, but there's a lot of ways, but to your point, um, they're in a spot, and yeah. there was a lot of, there was a lot of hope and hype behind it, and candidly, I think you can go into retail now and get a brand new copy for ten ninety nine. <laughs> you know, and I, and it's sad, you know, and yeah. I don't mean nineteen ninety nine. I mean, I'm, I'm serious, I think I saw a copy uh, for 10.99 and a weird price, but 10.99, and it was like, man, that's just not right. I mean, that's you know, you want to talk about price protection? Uh, you know, at least price protect me down to 29 before I'm down to 10.99. <laughs> so it's tough, but well, uh, you know, I know some of those guys, and as you say, they're a smaller studio. Um, there were a lot of aspirations, uh, but yeah, that's a toughie. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, toughie. I still might. In my opinion, their their biggest problem was that they did not have a dedicated community management person and and marketing to, to to handle all of that, handle community expectations and marketing presence, and you know the promises that go out to the public. And you know there was a little bit of a um, when Sean Murray went out and would start talking about stuff, there was a little bit of a Peter Molyneux effect where it's yeah. you know, in retrospect there might have been. A bit of overpromising going on, which you know, if you had an experienced community management person in that place, it would have uh, at least tempered that somewhat. Well said. Yeah. And they could have, and you're exactly right. And they could have reset to that late. You know, even if they mm -hmm. didn't realize early enough, they could have woken up the day of release and quickly actioned on that, and and still and helped themselves to to an extent more than than where they are now yeah you know, it didn't and, come out and, right but I and know that was the I mean. whole that was the whole issue too or they they went from promising everything to people were a bit upset to complete radio silence to getting hacked so yeah <laughs> yeah sad i mean and it, it is sad you know i've worked with a lot of developers and I've, I've i've seen some sad stories i've been involved with some some big situations in our development community eas activisions uh, Medal of Honor kind of situations where things have gone a little sour. Um, and so, you know, big and small, um, I've seen some some things. And I tell you, uh, when you go into it, and you've done this, you know, when you go into development studios and you see the team and you see them pre-release and then you see them post-release, uh, especially from a producer perspective, is let's say you did the first one and then they're they're pitching for the second and you go in and, we're trying to green light that second skew, knowing then that first, you know, that first release, not skew, but the first release didn't didn't exceed expectations. So it's that much harder for development to, for lack of a better term, convince more capital to come in, i.e. publishers to perhaps bring in the second sequel. 
Um, so it's become very difficult. Uh, and it's, it's almost worse so now because we have, over the last five plus years, we have an additional threat. We used to have retail and retail sell-through as being a big driver and how much would you spend on TV. But now we have our friend that's called mobile and mobile distribution or digital distribution, which makes it that much harder for um, studios to compete and be successful. Now, mm. you've got, you can succeed and be successful, but uh, who would have thought with supercells and kings and all this kind of mumbo jumbo uh, that, they, that they'd be valued at what they are? Yeah. Or even in days past, you know, PopCap. Um, you know, and then from pop cap to, you know, you get candy crush. It's just crazy off the hook um, on match games, match games. Come on now. You know, trivial RTS games. Not the you No, know, no, no, Don't be mad at me. But nonetheless, um, you know, RTS games, you know, we think back to Command and Conquer and Total Annihilation and Age of Empires and some of the, and then you go back to turn based games and everything else. And you see some of these other games on mobile that are just ungodly money makers. Uh, it can make some of these old cats like myself kind of scratch my head and say, man, uh, 20 years ago, why didn't I just start a studio? Or 10 years ago when I left X, why didn't I just grab you and you and you? Uh, but uh, interesting. And when you look at some of these organizations, it, you know, and there's some in, let's say, Santa Monica, California, that have got a big brand uh, and only one. Uh, when you think about how many people this organization has in, in excess of 3,000 for a single brand, and I know they, you know they take advantage of that brand, but 3,000 people to oversee um, a single brand hmm. on, for the most part, two devices you know or two core you know two core devices it's crazy for old producers like like myself to think about that um but you know uh you know there's plenty of groups out there have been very successful that way and uh i still scratch my head <laughs> all right i think this was a, a very interesting talk um and so here's the part where i like to sh have us share some uh, some old war stories about uh about our time in the industry. So, Stephen, you got any uh, interesting work anecdotes to share with everybody? Let's see. Let's see. I was thinking you'd start to let me think a little bit on this one, but let's see if I can get a good one. Um, we can. Yeah, I warned you. I warned you ahead of time. I did not. I did not. Just I know jump it. This I know it. <laughs> well, here's a fun one. So let's say. So let's say you're about. You know. Let's say you're in August. And you know you need to. You know, and and you're in the United States, and you need to release a. You need to release a game before Thanksgiving. Always very important to be out before Thanksgiving. So you know you've got to really start manufacturing in August. And um, we have something, and so we and we talked a little bit earlier about our alpha and beta dates, typically during the summer. And we have something that we call the E3 show. Uh, and this E3 show, you know, it used to be at the end of May. Now it's in June. Um, and when you and the E3 show is a show where all publishers, a lot of publishers and developers come together in Los Angeles. It's been in other places, but for many, many, many years, it's been in Los Angeles. And we show our wares. Everybody's showing their game. Uh, Sony have a booth. Nintendo have a booth. Microsoft, Apple. Everybody's got a booth. And you all want to be 
from a publisher or developer perspective, you want to be in that booth. You want the presence of being in the Sony or Microsoft booth, so you not only are in your publisher's booth, but you're in Sony Microsoft. Now, there's a method to this story now, so bear with me. Yeah. So to this end, you've got a show in June. Now, we already talked about Alpha, typically for a release coming out in Thanksgiving, about June. So when you think about the busiest, craziest time of a development schedule, it is June for many. Now, mobile, maybe not so much, but again, a lot of people are focused toward that end-of-year holiday. People like to buy things, and especially for their kids and husbands and wives, and sometimes that's video games. So for my tenure, and I've been in since 94, um, and I think I've been to every single E3, after 20 years, and it used to be more so, where we really had to be out before Thanksgiving. Mobile wasn't doing, you know, it was all about PC and console, and it was always you had to be before Thanksgiving, and typically you had to be before November, because early November, you're going to get a big one. It's going to be a halo. It's going to be... You know, in the way back, a Gran Turismo or a Call of Duty or Medal of Honor, something big is coming. So you got to be early. So why, after 20 years, has the E3 group not figured out how much pain they put on developers, producers, and QA teams by having their darn show in June right at Alpha State? And on top of everything else, we probably have to have executive producers off-site for a week, all producers off-site, QA may be off-site at the show for a week. We've got development directors off-site. And then the kicker comes that we need to have special new builds for E3, and we may need to create a special build for Sony, a special build for Microsoft, a special for Nintendo, and then we want a more robust one for our booth, and we want an even more robust one, maybe the full code set, for behind closed doors when we're showing press and retail because they <laughs> want to see whatever they want. So now we've got our in-development version, a Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, a regular booth, and a behind closed. We've got six code states in June, and we're trying to get out. I can't tell you how many times... I've been yelled at by studio heads, heads of studio, development directors, my boss, um, about, well, you want to ship this game in November? I'm not doing six builds for E3. <laughs> <coughs> so we would fight and fight. Of course, we'd always do the darn E3 builds. But I'll tell you, in seriousness, it's not necessarily a funny story, but it's it's a true story. And it's a painful one for many, and I think a lot will relate to the pain that is putting together or getting ready for E3. Let's just put it that <laughs> way, getting ready for E3 yeah. and the impact it has. And I'll tell you, I know code and games that have not released on time because there was such a push to be at E3. It was the main stage of, our, of a booth, if you will. And it didn't ship that year. Mm. Um, now, there were other reasons, this, that, and the other. But when we'd sit in round table, maybe late at night between producers talking trash, um, you know, we would, there might be an F coming before E3. 
you know, you know, in other words, fussy three builds. I'm not doing it again <laughs> this year. Uh, and I've been in that very situation. But yeah, after all this time, I don't understand why we haven't moved E3 to another time of the year. Uh, but, why, why not? Why not have it around? the same time as the game awards seem to be happening now so you can have it you know in the the you know the there's criticism that the game awards are very commercially driven so just to have it be at at the e3 so people are already going to be there so you can you know synergize with the venue and e3 is a very marketing driven thing so you got that so you got the marketing awards at the marketing event uh, near the end of the year in the ramp up to the holiday sales as opposed to the uh, Game Developers Choice Awards, which are after the new year and, you know, yeah. are the more the industry side of things. That, that seems to be reasonable to me, but... Isn't it? Well, I, I've actually never you, been to an E3 anyway, so... We gotta get you down there, my good man. <laughs> well, and I can say that uh, it's changed over the years. You know, people pulling back, you know, we would spend, you know, and they had Activision, you know, our different monies... Um, 20 million, you know, 10 million for E3s, oh, you know, and we think about different functions that have taken place at E3, you know, Eminem sung, uh, Motley Crue's been there before singing. Um, and then there was that one know, year where it was dropping. press only. Yeah. And there was, there's those times, but I remember EA had the who out at some point when the rock band came out, you had the who, I mean, come on now, how much money did EA spend for the who to be out at E3? Uh, but everybody wanted to be there, um, and you know, you know those harmonics guys and girls. Uh, you think they were under pressure for that E3 on their rock band? Oh yeah. A uh, little bit of pressure, little bit of pressure. But yeah, in all my years, there's been a lot of stress um, and a lot of extra QA hours that have had to been been added, if you will, as a result of of having to to drum up. For E3, E3 code, um, and having staff away. Um, and another thing that you mentioned, you know, never having been down to an E3, you know, I would always send my QA guys and have them on the floor uh, talking about the game. You and I have talked about this, you know, offline candidly. Um, you know, no one knows games better than a QA team. You know, 95, 98% of the time, the guys and gals that are testing or that used to test my games, or that work for me and our organization um, and test games. That's what they do. Um, I used to play a lot of game when I was producing, obviously. I still very focused, but nowhere to the level then. But I would never claim to have the depth of knowledge that um, great testers have. And I'd use the, you know, here's my uh, little quib if you will, I use the analogy a lot of the times. Um, QA gets me home, uh, and that's where you want to be. And sometimes I have a further analogy as it relates to being home. But QA gets you home, um, and if you treated your QA team right and you gave them the tools that they needed, uh, they're going to make you succeed. And and if you talk and if you and if you want to see that in practice. Uh, your studio is a great example. Another great example. Not, I'm not trying to highlight different groups, but um, we all know by following Metacritic and the likes, uh, another studio that does a pretty good job is 2K. Most 2K releases find a, an overall Metacritic rating plus 90, uh, and that's not easy to do. 
Uh, and, you know, it was not easy to do many years ago. Um, it's tough to do now. Uh, and, and knowing the guy who runs uh, QA and has done for many years there, um, you know, he, there is something special going on. And he has his organization very focused on the import of QA and the necessity to spend money and allocate the right team time and focus. And as a result, you know, they can release brand after brand every year, whether it's their wrestling or basketball. We won't even get into a grand theft. Um, we won't get into mafia either, but nonetheless, for a different reason, but nonetheless, um, having a basketball game, ex, you know, exceed its previous year over year by pretty good steps. Um, nothing to squawk at, you know, nothing to squawk at. So I know they've been very focused on their QA efforts and, and it's in, in having a lot of one-on-one with them. Uh, I genuinely believe it's because of the way that organization looks at QA and allows the QA team to really, really help polish, uh, that code. And I think it's paid off for them, you know, mm. and, and as, so, so as I say, QA gets you home. Yeah. And if you want to be blind to that, um, good luck getting another game out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I mean it, you know, good luck, you know, because QA is going to know, uh, you know, QA knows whether you got a winner or not. Uh, and they know early, <laughs> uh, you know, and you know it. Yep. Um, yep I do. And if you, and, and if you want to be blind to it and there's plenty of producers and I've had my, I've had my times where I know there's nothing I can do. And so I'll argue just for the sake of arguing, <laughs> But fully knowing that I've got a pile on my hands, <coughs> but I've got to release it, and I've got to clean it up as much as I can. Uh, and that's where you ask QA. Yeah. What do you think? Where should we focus? You know what you know. You know what you're seeing. Um, what should we do? And if you listen, chances are you'll make something better. I know I did, and I needed QA help a lot, uh, and they took good care of me. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and I think that'll be about it for us for today. Uh, thanks, Stephen, for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sure. And uh, everybody out there, if there's anything you'd like to see me write about on the Behind the Line article series or hear us talk about on the next on another uh, Behind the Line radio, you can always get in touch with me. Drop me a line at kinetic at enthusiasts.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiasts.com. See you all next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, let's plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. Enthusiacs.